0: Hi, everybody. This is God Sad for the Sad Truth. As usual, I have another fantastic guest for you today. I've got Matt Kibbe. I thought it was Kibbe. It's spelled K I B B E. Kibbe is a very famous Arabic dish, but Matt assured me that he's not Lebanese or Arabic. Matt used to be the president of Free the People, an organization that seeks to promote. Or is currently the president of Freedom People, an organization that seeks to promote libertarian ideals. He used to previously be the president of Freedom Works. Uh, he is the author of three books Give Us Liberty, "Liberty: a Tea Party Manifesto with Dick Army, Hostile Takeover Resisting Centralized Government Stranglehold strangle, on America, and the book that uh, I delved into the past couple of weeks and only finished a few days ago. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. A libertarian manifesto. And I was particularly keen to speak to Matt because I live in the greatest of parasitic states. Welcome, Matt. How you doing? It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you. Uh, you, 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 you reminded me that we met at I think the Global Liberty Institute Gala prior to the the the, the, the following day's event. Was it at the Glenn Lowry Awards? Was that it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Well, it's so good to see you. Uh, so, okay, let's let's jump jump into it. Uh, I guess the first question that many people would want to know: Define for us some of the key tenets of what it is to be a libertarian.
1: Yeah, like you can uh, you can get a ten uh, hour answer from most libertarians on this, but but I like to say you should be free to live your life as long as you don't hurt people or take their stuff. And it's, it's based on a philosophy of individualism. Individuals are the um, objective building block of, of any civil society. And, uh, we, we just think that beautiful things happen when people are left free to innovate and cooperate and work hard and do all of the amazing things that, that we celebrate. Um, all of that was because some individual had an idea and found partnership with other people. And did something greater than they could have done by themselves. And I, that process, that process of figuring stuff out, is only possible when people are free. So I, I like to say that most people, except except for psychopaths, have a have a little bit of libertarian in them because this is how we live our daily lives.
0: So okay, the the ideal of libertarianism can can be applied. I mean, freedom is an all encompassing term. Of course, it could apply to economic freedom. It could apply to political freedom, to freedom of speech, to uh, being free from intervening in uh, foreign lands, and therefore you become an isolationist. What does the term "freedom" encompass when you're talking about libertarian ideals?
1: So there's there's sort of two sides of the same coin, and I, I think part of part of it. And I, I certainly quote her in my book, and I was very inspired as a young man reading Ayn Rand. Um, her half of the libertarian coin is all about um, my right as an individual to control and define and live my own life, and and she, of course, was a refugee of the Bolshevik Revolution, a young Jewish girl that that fled to the United States, gave up everything in order to do that. So hers was that primal scream that um, you don't own me, I own myself, and I'm going to make my own choices. The other half of that, which I don't think is in any way unrelated, is the part where free people choose voluntarily to cooperate, and and through cooperation, you can achieve some of these really profound values that I think make the human experience interesting. Ideas like respect, ideas like trust, ideas ultimately like love. These, these are like the highest achievements that, that an individual can find. And that's, that's only done in cooperation with, with other people. And I think some libertarians are guilty of, of de-emphasizing that, that, that community that comes when, when people are free to live their own lives. Because we, we are social creatures, um, even, even libertarians. I mean, maybe there's a few who aren't, but uh, we're social, social creatures as well. And, and the really beautiful things that happen when people are free are, are something that's, that's greater than anything we could accomplish on our own. And, and that in no way undermines the principles of individualism. It's just, it's just the logic of that extended to how we organize as, as communities and as, as societies.
0: Very interesting. I, I, I just want to tell a tangential side story about Ayn Rand, and then I'll I'll come back to sort of more substantive media issues. I was actually, I think it was the trip where we met at the Global Liberty Institute. It was on, in that trip. I was walking on the the fancy street. I don't remember what it's called. The one in uh, in is. It what was in Palm Beach where we were, right? Was it Palm, yeah, Beach? Palm yeah. Beach? Yeah, Palm Beach, uh, yeah. So anyways, on that street, there is, we, uh, my wife and I were just uh, strolling and we discovered this uh, antiquarian bookstore. And I mean, that's basically my fantasy to walk into an antiquarian bookstore. So we walk in there and of course I see a... The the most expensive book that they had was a first edition Origin of Species, which of course would make me very titillated given that I'm an evolutionist. But then there was another section that were all first edition, and I think some signed copies of the various books by Ayn Rand. Now, I know a gentleman in Texas, this uh, billionaire oil tycoon who's a huge Ayn Rand fan. So I call him up after we had left the place, and I said, hey... uh, this is a story, what do you think? Do you want me to try to connect? He goes, well, why don't you go buy them for me? And of course I'll pay you back, which kind of make me chuckle because it's his his what he suggested could only come from the mouth of a billionaire who thinks that as we're walking to the beach, I just happen to have maybe 50 or $60,000 laying around that I can pay it for him. So anyways, I don't know if you would know who that oil tycoon is. I'm not going to mention him, but a huge fan. I'm not sure if he ended up buying those those copies, but if you are interested, there are first editions in Palm Beach, ready for the taking. Anything you want I to ask? Go ahead.
1: I have a, I have a suspicion who that is, um, and I should point out, and this makes me an extremely weird person. One of the most romantic books my wife ever got me was not a first edition signed copy of Atlas Shrugged, but uh, it was it was signed by Ayn Rand, and it it meant a lot to me again because like this this was uh, this was the first. Uh, Anthem was the first book I read as a 13-year-old that sort of turned me on to this entire philosophical uh, exploration.
0: Yeah, so I, w- I want to talk about your your trajectory, which you just kind of hinted at when you were 13 and first were exposed to work. So some of the other people that, I, you know, I was already familiar with, but in reading your book, it kind of, I got re-energized and sort of saying, oh, I got to dig deep into these guys. Of course, there's one, is it, do you say Mises or Mises? Mises, Mises, which I, by the way, I cite him in The Parasitic Mind in a, in a, in a different context. Uh, and then you've got Hayek, and then you've got more recently uh, Rothbard. So these are some of the main guys that we might think of when we're thinking about, you know, libertarian philosophies. Are there any other folks that if we're trying to create kind of a genealogy of that thought, uh, who might other people be that we might be missing here?
1: If you dig into the footnotes of of Hayek and Mises, you're going to find uh, some continental philosophers who are fairly obscure, but absolutely the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers, um, particularly Adam Smith, but uh, the whole host of of guys that were writing in that milieu that that Adam Smith was writing in. And and this book, by the way, is is my um, very serious attempt to translate the entirety of the Theory of Moral Sentiments into a tweet. Yeah and this is back when tweets were short so it was uh it was a heroic effort but i think i
0: mostly captured it there might be some nuance lost got you uh so with with other i think edmund burke would be part of that gang correct sure yeah okay so 13 oh, years by, old. by the way
1: uh, jerry garcia i absolutely needs to be part of that mix
0: oh yes the the i i saw your whole uh, ode to the grateful dead uh i yes i got you uh so okay oh and of course uh Rush, fellow Canadians, yes. yes. Have, yes. have I Wanna... have I surpassed the the Rush singer singer as the the most impressive Canadian, or is it Jordan? Is it that bastard Jordan Peterson? Or where do I rank amongst illustrious Canadians? Um,
1: I I, I think I would put all three of you into this category. <laughs> you're, um, you're being I, too I kind. I, yes, I guess I'll put Neil Young in there, but uh, he's he's gotten a little bit uh,
0: goofy in his old age. Got gotcha. you. So no, so no Justin Trudeau, I presume. No, not no. at all. <laughs> okay, so you're 13. You get into Ayn Rand, and then take us through your uh, intellectual development from there.
1: So, I uh, when I was 13, I, I bought a, my first Rush album, and you know back then you couldn't you couldn't just order things online, and you couldn't search for the kind of music you liked, and so I haphazardly heard this. Um, someone else was playing it and I went to the record store to find the album I wanted. Of course, they didn't have it because old school bricks and mortar stores didn't really have what you wanted. So I bought 2112 because it had this cool, um, cover on it. I'm like, that's cool. I'm going to listen to it. And, and I was devouring the music. And back in the day, you would open the, uh, liner notes on the vinyl record case and you would read about the band. You would read the lyrics and, and there's, you know, the, the first, song suite of 2112, is, is borrows liberally from Ayn Rand's little novella, Anthem. And at the bottom of this, it says, dedicated to the genius of Ayn Rand. And I'm 13. I'm like, who's that guy? Who's that dude? Um, and then I forgot about it because I, I love the music, but the name was weird. So it stuck in my head. I found, uh, maybe weeks later, I found an old beat-up copy of Anthem at a garage sale. This is how ideas used to spread. It was it was quite accidental, and I of course devoured it, and I set out on this course to to find her other books. That particular book was so old that that Atlas Shrugged hadn't been written when when that particular book was was um, published. So I I went and found the Fountainhead as the second book. Eventually, you get through her nonfiction books, and she's the one that told me as a teenager you you need to read Ludwig von Mises if you want to understand economics. So this this was my sort of intellectual path. I was a very introverted, uh, dorky kid who was quite shy. So I just read a bunch of books and I discovered um, through trial and error that that quoting Ludwig von Mises and Ayn Rand to uh, women hoping that they would go, to, go out with you was a tragic mistake. <laughs> it did not
0: work. But you are, if I remember correctly in meeting you, you are tall, correct? Yes, I'm 6'1". Well, there you go. Well, I, but then again, most people to me are tall, certainly most men from the United States. In in Mexico, I'm the tall one, but anywhere else, I'm the short one. So you weren't able to compensate in reading, in inciting those guys by your height? That didn't work out the calculus? I will say that the
1: first woman who I was interested in that wasn't um, scared away by me offering her a book to read is my current wife, Terry. So she she sort of passed the the dork test or whatever that test was. <laughs> um, it's um, I was not a romantic, but but these ideas like you get you, like when you get turned on to ideas, you just become obsessed, and that obsession is
0: is uncontrollable sometimes. So then you you went to university where you know that that interest flourished. What then led you to decide, I think you, if you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but you had started graduate school, but then left it. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yeah. So So what happened there? So, um, I was, I was actually editing the academic journal called market process at George Mason university. George Mason is, is one of the best places to go in the world. If you want to study Austrian economics and, um, I I discovered, and this this might resonate with you, it might trigger you. I discovered the the petty and vicious nature of of the politics of tenure, and it was it was a real turnoff to me. Um, I again, I'm young and idealistic, and I think we're we're exploring ideas together, and we're going to lift each other up. Um, it, it wasn't like that at all. So the irony is, I I eventually uh, got away from my academic pursuits. Um, to go to Washington, D.C. And, and get into politics, which is the irony. Academia was too political for me. So I, I got a job at the Republican National Committee as their chief economist instead. So that logic may not make sense unless you actually have been in a university and understand just how, how um, awful it can be.
0: Given that you, I, I actually have something to say about uh, the machinations within academia. I, I could spend probably ten hours talking about that, but I'll mention one thing that I think does have a link to George Mason in a moment. But uh, given that you, you know, you've lived a life, a cerebral life, notwithstanding that it wasn't, you know, in academia, have you ever entertained the idea? Hey, I think I could probably go back now to graduate school and polish it off, or there's absolutely no interest in doing that.
1: Um I have an interest in it 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 bugs me a little bit that I didn't finish um obviously not enough to to have finished but I've explored um several times maybe finishing my PhD at a university in Europe that has a very different sort of style of that the, the one thing I am good at is I consider myself a decent writer so so writing a dissertation based on something that I'm working on it it's a possibility but it yeah honestly it doesn't affect the work that I do so it it would be a it would be a vanity project as opposed to a necessity.
0: You know I would say for whatever it's worth you didn't ask me for my advice but just do it. You know what I mean? Like don't 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 leave that thing not closed. You know just close the parentheses and even if it serves you absolutely no interest other than as you said a vanity thing. Although I don't think you don't strike me as someone who would do it for just vanity purposes. Just do it. Uh, By the way, I'll mention two quick stories and I'll go back to the George Mason. In my latest book, in the happiness book, towards the end of the book, where I'm talking about uh, the psychology of regret and how you should try to live your life without hopefully looking back at your life and regretting things that you did or didn't do. uh, I mentioned two stories, which I hope will resonate with you because you'll see in a second why they're relevant. Uh, Story one is of a gentleman who had fled... uh, Germany, as the Nazis were coming in, he moved to Canada, uh, had always, was always interested in being, uh, you know, a well-educated person, didn't have a chance because of life circumstances, retired in his sixties and then said, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm healthy. And I've got, I think I've got things to offer. Why don't I go now and pursue my undergraduate in his sixties? This was at, uh, at, my current, at the university that I'm at, uh, before it joined, uh, There were two separate universities that joined together that became Concordia University. So he was at this place called Sir George Williams University, if I remember correctly. So he does his bachelor's. And then he's in his 70s now, says, hey, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm still vigorous, let me pursue my master's, finishes his master's. And then I think in 96, so this is maybe two years after I had joined as a professor at Concordia, the newspaper at, at, at my university and the front page was finally a doctor at 91 or 92. And then within a year of that, he passes away. So it's actually the exact opposite of vanity, right? It's the purest reason for being, for doing a PhD, which is it's not going to serve you in any way in a career ascent, but he, he just did it for the love of it. So that's story one. Story two, a gen- another gentleman who got his MD in, I believe, in uh, University of Vienna in Austria, uh, became a medical doctor. Then in 1967, while training to be a hematologist, picked up a PhD in biochemistry. But his, lo- his first love had always been physics. So, after he retired from a long career in medicine and well into his 70s and 80s, he then at the age of 89 completed his PhD in physics and actually came on my show. So, based on those two guys, you're a, you're a fetus. So, you, you still have tons yeah. of time. I'm just a baby.
1: So, it's... there is like, there's, there's a certain logic to like my career trajectory has been further and further away from sort of uh, wonky, heavy academic stuff towards um communicating as as simply as possible to a broader audience but but those old silos and and you're a walking talking example of this uh those old silos that separate academia from from communications and popular culture don't exist anymore so i i can i can see where it would make more sense than perhaps um 10 years ago when i was when i was um sort of maniacally focused on how do we reach a broader audience how do i turn on more people um, it's not going to be
0: just quoting the dead economists that I love so much. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let me close the loop on the the George Mason. So uh, back in two thousand eleven, I had been invited to uh, give a talk at Chapman University. Uh, Chapman University had had that at the time had hired the dean. Uh, at George Mason in the faculty of arts and science to become the chancellor at Chapman university. You're, you're, you're not nodding your head. Is that because you know who I'm talking about? I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know a lot about
1: Chapman. Um, one of my friends, uh Vernon Smith spent quite a bit of time there.
0: Ex- well, exactly. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to come to that. So I was invited to the thing because it called the economic science Institute, or I can't, I can't remember what it's called. So Vernon Smith, who's the Nobel laureate had been, uh, whisked away to join Chapman and they had a really nice group and I had been invited and the chancellor who who had been poached from uh, George Mason and the president had been very, very keen on me joining Chapman and the whole setup had been, you know, all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted, but then precisely for petty academic reasons, it fell through, although I was officially told that it was due to budgetary reasons. It had nothing to do with budgetary reasons, and that has always been a very sour point because I thought I thought that you know we we had finally made it to the to the promised land, meaning Southern California, and at the last minute it has been whisked away. So you're you're exactly right that your disdain for the political backstabbing in academia is is certainly not pretty. Uh, do you want to add anything to that, or should I move on to the next question?
1: Uh, just very quickly, I'm remembering one of the uh, I won't name names, but uh, one of the places I was considering was in London to finish my PhD. And this is back when I'm still a tea party guy and cancel culture was, was a big thing there that I hadn't at least wasn't on my radar screen yet. And and I thought like, if anything, it might be a little bit prestigious to have this guy who writes these best selling books, be part of your program. And he was scared. He thought that it would draw undue attention to his department so that that obviously never materialized well i tell you i
0: i often call academics a, a new species uh that is a, an invertebrate castrati class meaning not only do they not have spines they don't have testicles and it, it it's so grotesque because the 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 mechanism of tenure is precisely to make sure that if you were otherwise cowardly by disposition Well, the mechanism of tenure can now serve as the courage that you need to compel you to speak out because by definition, you can't be fired. And most academics, if you go, boo, they suck their thumb and they go into a fetal position. Uh, I find that so grotesque because it, it would be so nice in the same way that we select Navy SEALs on their physical abilities, on their bravery. It would be nice to have intellectual Navy SEALs in academia but we certainly don't select on bravery.
1: Well the 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 solution probably isn't within academia and in, in my sense you would have an opinion about this it's got to be sort of breaking those rules from the outside in and forcing these old tired institutions to either follow or die in the process and i think i think again like the fact that that there is now a place where young people can um, I make up a word called self-curriculate. You can actually find the ideas and the thinkers and the books and and the explorations that you want and and you can do that regardless of who you are, regardless of whether or not you're the white, right race to get to get into Harvard. Um, you don't need permission anymore. and I think I think that might either discipline these old tired institutions or just put them out of business.
0: I think the only uh... Uh, obstacle that I see to what you're talking about, which is that now, you know, knowledge is truly democratized, right? You, you can pick your 20 top professors in any field and go to their lectures online uh, and, and learn in ways that you couldn't have imagined 15 years ago. How do we deal with the imprimatur of the credentials? How, how, is there a way for us to solve that? Um, that's, that's going to
1: require like the first brave few, you, you know, Peter Thiel sure. has spent years encouraging people not to go to college <laughs> and to go straight into innovation. Um, it's, you, you need like, uh, first generation people that are going to stick their necks out and do that and make it normal so that, you know, when you go out there to get a job, um, it's not just assumed that, a that a degree from, from an accredited government approved university, is the best way to judge someone's ability um but it's 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 a it's a cultural institutional shift that
0: requires somebody to go first right Uh, you know i one of the things that uh i've been most disappointed in my academic career and this is now my 30th year i can't believe it my 30th year as a professor uh is that i thought that more academics would be intellectuals and they're not right so uh, I think you exactly understand what I mean. So, so, think about the old, you know, continental European public intellectual who could talk about the philosophy of aesthetics if you want, who could talk about formal logic if you want, who can talk about Austrian economics if you'd like. He may not be an expert in any of those, but but that person is a well-rounded intellectual that can speak intelligently about a broad number of fields. Christopher Hitchens might be an example of that, even though he didn't have a PhD and he wasn't, of course, an, an actual academic or a professor. I find that academia has become very much careerist oriented. So that when I go to, when I first started going to conferences, all these you know super fancy academic conferences, and I would try to engage people with ideas, I f- I found a lot of them bafflingly. Shallow, right? Because they knew how to play the game. I need to publish a certain number of papers, and okay, of course that's important. You need to be productive, you have to push the research frontier. But can we just go for a coffee and talk about some idea? And so in a sense, I could be reading your book, Matt, and you can exude greater intellectualism than some of my psychology colleagues who've published a hundred papers who, once you ask them about anything short of what they publish on, they're babbling fools.
1: Yeah, performative technocrats, and <laughs> it, in in that way, it's like the bureaucracy in academia feels almost exactly like the bureaucracy in government or the bureaucracy in in corporations, where you know the performative art of of doing what you're supposed to do uh, overrules the things that you would really hope that they
0: were capable of doing. Yeah, exactly. I, I and I've seen this even in the pedagogic orientation that that professors use when let's say they're teaching their doctoral students. So I've, I've seen colleagues who will teach their doctoral course as a way to game how to publish in certain journals, right? So you, you, you may or may not know these statistical techniques. Yeah. Well, this journal really wants you to do a mediational analysis. And so let me teach you how to do a mediational analysis because it's going to be very unlikely for you to publish in this important journal if you don't do that. Who thinks like that, right? I mean, nature doesn't abide to your methodology, right? In some cases, I might use this methodology, this data analytic technique. This... And so I always found it fraudulent in this, I mean, in an epistemic sense. I don't mean fraudulent in the sense that you're cooking the data or plagiarizing a la Gay. gay, but it still feels fraudulent to me because you're not saying, I'm interested, let me discover something in nature. You're just playing a game and I despise that. And by the way, uh, maybe to my credit, or maybe it was a fault, I refused to play that game so that I specifically chose to not publish in certain journals because then I would feel inauthentic if I simply responded to the reviewer's quest just so I can get my paper in.
1: This this is one of the fundamental struggles with academics who are um, influenced or explicitly aus- of the Austrian tradition in economics, is Austrianism by definition is sort of um, multidisciplinary um, there's, there's history, there's philosophy, right. there's psychology, there's, there's all of these things that influence what we do. And the, the, the fetishism about making economics a science has replaced all of that with really esoteric equations that have extracted the humans and their actions out of the whole process. So it's, it's very difficult for Austrians to succeed in, in those kinds of uh, institutional incentives that you're describing.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's beautifully said. Because I, of course, I I saw this even in my own training. So I was trained in my PhD within the behavioral decision theory framework. So, uh, you know, my doctoral supervisor, who's a cognitive psychologist, was, you know, was was friends with Amos and uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. One of my professors was uh, Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in her behavioral economics, and of course that approach to decision-making is, to your point, is so radically different from the ultra-mathematical folks. Now, by the way, it's not as though I'm intimidated for mathematics. I come from a mathematics background myself, but I quickly realized that, as you said, the economists who were, we we used to call them the quantoids, uh, they truly did suffer, not to get Freudian, but they did suffer from physics envy, right? Because if there's a lot of Greek symbols then holy God, I must be doing something important. But if you're doing the Austrian stuff, the synthetic thinking, the big thinking, then that's kind of wishy-washy bullshit. You need to show me a triple integral for this to be meaningful. Exactly, exactly. And do, do you feel that that's, you know, has there been an autocorrection to that? Or has the mathematical orgy continued unabated? Well, it, it continues in academia, but I think
1: it also delegitimizes uh, economics as a profession. And and the one thing that's even funnier than than lawyer jokes or economist jokes, because you know we've we've become a laughing stock because they have created this belief that there's some sort of mathematical formula to figuring out the inputs and the outputs, and if you do all of these things, and and by the way, we're having the government do all those things. To manipulate the economy we will get x plus one and of course they're always fundamentally wrong about everything (laughs) and and part of it is is that pretense of knowledge this is a hayek quote the pretense of knowledge that goes into the the scientistic uh pretensions of of fake economics
0: so uh, i didn't know that term from hayek but i'm going to link it to one of my former uh professors for a year long pro seminar in cognitive studies and my PhD uh, has a paper on the illusion of explanatory profundity. And the idea, is, I mean, exactly to that point. So, so I, I then applied that concept to the brain imaging paradigm. The idea is that people, when they see a you know a, an image of the brain in a paper with all these colors because it, it corresponds to the different lit up regions of the brain, it just feels sciency, right? Whereas if I didn't have that, even though that image doesn't predict anything, it has zero explanatory power to anything, but it just feels sciency, right? So with one of my current doctoral students, uh, who's kind of lagging his feet if he's watching right now or listening, uh, we're looking at how something is packaged affects how sciencey it feels. So, so you're using these completely irrelevant cues, whether it be the triple integral or the nice brain image, to signal that this is very rigorous. When in reality, it's explaining nothing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it, it, they're losing their credibility, and I think um, scientism applied all over the place, tragically, is undermining the 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 fundamental essential nature of of scientific exploration and discovery and of course we we saw that in spades during during lockdowns and and our our um religious obsession with vouchism right is he's like i am the science and <laughs> at some point you start to doubt science instead of doubting the guy that's pretending like he knows what he's doing
0: yeah i and you just for for the viewers you you kindly sent me a paper on exactly on that which i look forward to reading uh I mean, I guess in a sense, whether it be Fauci or others of his ilk, what they're doing is they are exactly not exhibiting what a true intellectual would, which is epistemic humility, right? I mean, the more, and it sounds like a cliche, but it it truly is true that the more I know, and I probably know more than most people, the more I realize how little I know, because I'm actually aware of all the knowledge out there and I know nothing, Whereas yeah. the the people like Fauci, be perhaps the god complex, perhaps the white coat, I am science. What a grotesque, non intellectual bent that is, isn't it?
1: Well, he's and he's this goes back to the academic disease that we're talking about, but it's it's sort of built into the process when it comes to government action and government bureaucracies and and all of these these arrogant um, people with so much um, arrogance that they think they can redesign a complex social order. And, and this, this is one of the fundamental libertarian critiques of, of central planning generally of, of government attempts to, to redesign the economy is they just don't know enough and they couldn't possibly know enough because the whole purpose of an economy, it's not a place, it's not a thing. It's this process of, of people figuring stuff out and taking all of this dispersed knowledge and, and bringing it together in, in a, in a world that is in real time, radically uncertain. And if you pretend like you can redesign that from the top down, you're going to have, um, small and catastrophic, um, human disasters. Um, ultimately this was the Austrian critique of, of central planning, and and we've seen it play out again and again, but we're still having the same argument. What,
0: what was there? some, I mean, I've I've often asked the following question, as applied to the ancient Greeks, where I ask, say, a classicist, what was there in the water that make the that made the Greek miracle possible? Uh, and of course, there are several possible answers that one can give. Uh, so, similar question: What was in the water that made? The Austrian way of thinking, when it comes to these issues, uniquely different from other traditions.
1: Well, it it um, I'll I'll make up an answer that I think is mostly true. Um, they come from starting with Karl Menger, who's who's a um, an economist uh, living in Vienna, Austria. Ludwig von Mises, inspired by him and some of his students, becomes part of the Vienna Circle. The famous... I was going to ask about that. Okay, good. Yeah. Famous interdisciplinary um, hangout where, for whatever reason, some of the smartest people in history are gathering together and having arguments and getting coffee and hashing things out.
0: Look at this guy. Mm Sorry. I don't know if you know this guy. I I know his name, but I don't know him that well. Oh, you should read his stuff. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Kurt Girdle, go ahead. So so this
1: is all happening, and um, um, in the middle of this, um, this guy Hitler decides to take over Austria and Ludwig von Mises has to flee to the United States. Um, Hayek flees to the London School of Economics and, and all of that that interdisciplinary stuff is, is kind of halted in its tracks um, to be picked up in other places, but it's probably never quite the same. So I think there was probably that, that magical moment where um, intellectual life was as it should be where people were willing to put their ideas on the line willing to have that conversation willing to listen to people from other disciplines and and figure stuff out and i think i think that's where the interdisciplinary nature of of the austrian school comes from
0: oh i mean you you're 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 speaking to my heart because i'm probably the epitome uh, to 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 my detriment in academia the ultimate interdisciplinary and that i've you know published in countless. I mean, I've published papers on psychiatric disorders in medical journals while housed in a business school, right? I mean, I have a paper on Munchausen syndrome by proxy and a Darwinian analysis of that what does that have to do with consumer behavior and economic decision-making? Nothing, but I didn't care because it it the the problem interested me. And I said, oh, I think I've got something hopefully interesting to say about this. And so I went for it. Now, the same university that I mentioned earlier, Chapman, uh, a few years after the first foray of trying to hire me, tried to hire me again. And one of the problems that they had with me was that my research, while great, I'm using their word, while, while wonderful, was seemed too scattered because I had given a talk where I demonstrated the number of different places where one can apply the evolutionary lens. So by definition, I had structured my talk as one that traverses many disciplines to show that the evolutionary lens can kind of unlock the mysteries in many fields. They viewed that as a detriment because you have to be a hyper specialist. It's it's grotesque, Matt.
1: And, and by the way, the the other the other factor I think that goes into Austrians and perhaps um might very much reflect where where you and Jordan Peterson have found yourself. Um, the Austrian School was also defined by the events that that consumed all around: um, fascism and Hitler on one side, um, Stalin and communism on the other side. And here you have these these classical liberals who believe in in free people and free markets and and the free exchange of goods and services and ideas and everything else. Uh, surrounded on all sides. So I think um, if you look at um, Mises's early work on money and then his critique of, of the failure of central planning and then Hayek's entire um, project was really a response to central planners, not just socialists, but uh, John Maynard Keynes, who thought he could ma- manipulate the economy through macroeconomics. Um, so, So what they're known for is their critique of the failures of, of government planning and that that of course attracts a lot of libertarians but there's there's the methodology and the the intellectual tradition but there's also the circumstances that force them to explain why these were really bad and anti-human ideas very
0: interesting uh, of all the different intrusions that a government can can commit maybe it's difficult to come up with a hierarchy. The one that probably has caused me the greatest amount of pain, and most recently over the past few years as the book royalties of my highly successful books have come in, is taxation, right? I mean, until the book royalties, came, I mean, I, I'd written previous books, but they, they they hadn't been so massively successful that it, it, it caused a, a psychological existential pain. And- When you're paid as a professor, when the taxes are taken at the source so that you only see half of it right away, then that's a way for you to psychologically kind of swallow it. But when you get the money and you take ownership of it in your bank account, because it's not taxed at the source, because my publishers are American, so they send me without taxation, but then under the mechanism of world income, Canada and Quebec take, you could go on Jupiter and and make money there it's, it's Quebec and Canada's money. So because I had already exceeded a certain uh, threshold of what my income was, my additional income was taxed at 58%. So that, now there is something unique, Matt, and you'll agree as a, a successful author yourself, there is something unique. All taxation can be very painful because all people work hard for their money. But royalties are unique in that they are part of the collective knowledge that humanity built. That's why Ireland doesn't have taxes on art creation and on book royalties because they recognize that that's a unique thing. Whereas in my case, I only have 42% rights to my neuronal firings, to my personhood. So I work from January till about September for the government. And in September, the government says, now you keep your money, but not really because the 42% that you can keep if you spend anything with that 42%, we tax you at 15%. How is it that people tolerate this? Now, before before you answer, I'm going to answer it for you. Could it be that the parasitic state rests on the premise that it requires suckers like me to f- to fund the rest of the Ponzi scheme, whereas most people benefit from the parasitic state, and therefore they're never going to speak out against it. Go ahead and write other good books, Jew boy, and give us the money.
1: The um the 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 fact of the matter is, and this is a, a favorite libertarian slogan: taxation is theft. And vulgar democracy, where fifty plus plus one percent of the population gets to do whatever they want to the other 49% is is just outsource theft to a third party. And it's it's hard to explain this to people because we've been conditioned to expect the government to do X, y, and Z, and there's all these these uh, salacious promises that they make us when they're trying to get our votes. But it really comes down to two questions like, would you ever um, cross the lawn to your neighbor's yard? Knock on his front door and hold him up and steal his money because you have this this beautiful idea that you're gonna you're gonna go help other neighbors. Let's say with with child care, um, you would never do that. And yet, when you go to the voting booth, you do the same. You you actually do hold up your neighbor based on some promise that some politicians going to make. And and this is this is a core question about the organization of civil society. Do we? use cooperation and respect and trade and and all of these these beautiful things that we aspire to do or do we use violence and and my my view is that you there's there's not good government or bad government there's only limited or unlimited government so if you want to limit the amount of theft you have to limit the size of government
0: so can you ever foresee a time so in canada and i'm I'm almost certain that the history of taxation, uh, I mean, personal income tax taxation is roughly the same in the U.S. I think in Canada in 197 until 1917, no income tax then. Oh, we just need, it's going to be very temporary. As Milton Friedman said, there's nothing as temporary, uh, there's nothing as permanent as temporary government, uh, you know, services and so on, uh, programs, uh, 1970, oh, we're just going to tax a few people very temporarily, and then we watch for the next 105 years where the, the orgy becomes parasitic beyond you know imagination. Could you ever conceive of a time where the fulcrum will swing the other way that we're back to, I don't know, 5% income tax, or that train has sailed and you shall never return to the good old days? It's It's difficult to
1: imagine how to unwind it, which is why... I support. I would support a flat income tax instead of replacing it with a national sales tax, for the simple reason that no government program is ever going to go away, and all we'll do end up doing is adding a value added tax or a national sales tax on top of all these other things, because because every idea. That is, that is that is implemented by government becomes a monster. It takes on a life of its own. There's all of these interests that, that ensure that, it, that you can never unwind these things. It is absolutely true of the tax code. And, and there's something even more insidious going on. And I, 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 I know more about the US than Canada, but there's only so much money you can extract from people through taxation. There's only so much money. once you've Once you've hit that, then you start borrowing money that you can't pay back, and there's only so much money you can borrow. The third and most insidious way that governments expand their power is by is by printing currency and exp- expanding the money supply, which is an explicit transfer of wealth from the have-nots, the working class, to to the, all of the special interests and 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 elites that that know they know how to play the game, they know how to protect their wealth from from inflation, and that's that's where we're at now. And and you would think that that would cause a grassroots revolution. All you got to do is go buy a dozen eggs, yeah. and and uh. wonder these like I I think it's they've literally tripled in cost since lockdowns in twenty twenty at my grocery store. Yeah, uh, this should be a revolution because they're stealing your money, but it's it's hard to see right. It's it's obscured by the complexities of 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 money and and financing and all that stuff. So so no, I, I would be I would be pessimistic about this, except the possibility of of the emergence of crypto technologies and cryptocurrencies as as Hayek would have said, as an end run around this top-down system. I think that's why people like Elizabeth Warren are going bananas about Bitcoin, because they know that 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 the these these sorts of technologies completely undermine the ponzi, ponzi scheme of tax borrow
0: spend and print do you, so earlier i said that one of the reasons why people may not fight back against very high taxation is because they the they, the net benefit to them outweighs whatever they pay in taxes i think in canada 40% of people don't pay i think federal income tax and it, you know the, the the, the the histogram of how much the top people pay, is just, it's just, outland- it's unbelievable. It really. Is. And then you hear people saying, oh, but you, you know, why don't you pay your fair share? Why do I have to pay 25 times what you pay for the exact same server? What's the moral? Well, it's just a psychology of envy. It's a psychology of resentment. Why do you, why did you write the, the, the great books that sold a lot, whereas I didn't? And therefore give me your money. I, you owe me that money. But is there could it also be beyond what i just said could it be that most people feel helpless to be able to in any way alter the goliath that's moving i mean what's my voice going to change and therefore let me just go on in my little life because it is what it is
1: yeah i i think there's a lot of uh, helplessness and and uh, frustration and just throwing up your hands and you know Politics is a joke and you don't expect either party to actually do anything that they said they were going to do. And if, this, I think, is ultimately what broke a, you know, I was a Tea Party organizer. Right. And 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 our whole mantra spontaneously emerged, not from the top down, but, you know, we were for individual freedom, fiscal responsibility, and constitutionally limited government. Every activist anywhere would say some version of the same thing. And they, they sort of heroically rose up and said, you know what, I'm going to get involved in the policy debates. I'm going to get involved in the political process. I'm going to elect people who will promise to, to sort of live by these values. And every step along the way, you know, you, the, we were the precursors to, to the modern conversation where anybody that challenges the, the government in Washington, D.C., um, you're, you're called a bigot, you're called a racist, you're called a fascist. Uh, These, these are not new tactics from, from the Alinsky left. And, and then, you know, they survived all of that. They, they elected uh, Republicans that said they were, they were true to these things, but nothing changed. And I I think this is how Trump ultimately courted at least some Tea Partiers to come over because he's like, you know what, they don't respect you. The system's broke. It's a swamp. Uh, Let's blow it up. Figuratively speaking. Right. So I, I, think, I, think, I think people are cynical and frustrated because they have every right to be cynical and frustrated about their ability to reform what is supposedly a representative uh, democracy, supposedly constrained by constitutional limits on government power. It's hard to find the American vision in what's happening today.
0: If you were to compare, so when I read your, let me just put it up again, people go get this book, 2014, go get it right now. Uh, As I read it, I mean, you certainly were uh, intimating, you know, there's, you know, there's a revolution coming, people are taking action, people are assuming personal agency. So if I were to take that optimistic message and fast forward 10 years later, has it improved or has it worsened? Have people uh, adhered to the clarion call or, or are you more pessimistic than you were in 2014?
1: so it's um and I, there's a there's a chapter it's been a while since i read it but i think there's a chapter called the right to know and i'm i'm very um optimistic about the democratization of 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 knowledge through technology um completely not anticipating although i I describe the problem as like the, the problem with all of these beautiful technologies is one they're incredibly liberating used the right way And two, there are incredibly dangerous way that the government can control us and what we've seen. And I think I'll even draw some optimism out of this, but the insane amount of granular censorship to come out of particularly the, um, I'll call it the defense industrial complex, the intelligence industrial complex, tells me that people with the freedom to figure stuff out on themselves was an existential threat to the, I'll call it the regime. This is a, a libertarian word, but I don't know what to call it, but the machine, right? The, like you have this in, insanely expansive government power structure and they're actually going in and dictating to Twitter employees, hey, this guy just told a joke about, about a politician that we have to stop that. Um, it tells me that they're scared and right. it tells me that um, um, Elon Musk is, is, it has to be a hero in this story because he blows the lid off of this and there are now um plenty of of new places where people can discover this process. So I I believe in the wisdom of crowds and I believe that these technological tools are are very much a good thing, but the government has weaponized them against us and we have to figure out how to solve that
0: problem. Right. Uh speaking of Elon Musk, I just today I retweeted someone said that uh someone had uh nominated him for a Nobel Prize. And I retweeted and I said, I I second that. And as soon as he bought Twitter, I had gone on record, I think I put out a a clip on my channel, where I said that of all the great initiatives that he's been involved in, and that's more than probably 10,000 men put together, uh, none will come remotely as historically important as him having opened up the public square. Uh, So I'm assuming based on what you said, you would uh, wholeheartedly agree with that uh, premise.
1: Yeah, I would endorse that, but you can also see um, this gets back to somebody has to go first, and and in a lot of ways, Elon Musk has gone first, and he has an insane amount of fu money. Yeah, that that protects him to a great extent in ways that it wouldn't necessarily perfect, protect a, a college professor. Right. Um. But but just look at what they're doing to him, like um, all of the attacks on on him and his contracts with with uh, with his companies. And, you know, Biden himself saying, we got to investigate that guy. The intimidation is real. And he just happens to be, um, it looks like he's tough enough, but he's definitely wealthy enough to sort of fight that machine. But it's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing that normal people probably don't, um, want to bring that, that sort of, uh, weight down on their families.
0: Right. But that's why, by the way, in in the parasitic mind, in the last chapter, I, I say, you know, activate your inner honey badger. And the reason why I do that, the reason why I use the honey badger, and some of my listeners have probably heard me explain this uh, on a few occasions. He, he, don't, he don't give a shit. He don't give a shit, right? So you see when you know, the reason why people like Elon Musk and Donald Trump are so intimidating, because what well, what's more intimidating than an animal that if you sting it, it keeps walking, if you bite it, I mean, the, I don't know if you've ever seen this footage. There's a footage where a constrictor has completely suffocated a a honey badger, the honey badger finds a way to get out and escape when it's like literally almost dead. The instinct, instead of now running as far away from the massive constrictor, it says, I'm going to kill you. It comes back, kills the constrictor. There are jackals coming that are trying to steal what he just killed. He fights off the jackals. That's Donald Trump. That's Elon Musk. You may like them, you may not like them, but God damn it, you're going to respect the fact that they're honey badgers.
1: Yeah. And that's like, uh, in a very different sense, um, uh, somewhere in my book, I quote, probably my favorite quote from Ludwig von Mises about the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur is that guy that looks around the corner of history and imagines a better future. You know, maybe it's a product or service or, or whatever it is. And all along the way, the masses are mocking him and laughing at him and trying to stop him and trying to marginalize him. Um, that that's what we need, but that's always what, um, American culture has been about that. Like our founding was an impossibility. Yeah. Um, but some, some crazy bastard said, you know what, this, this thing is important to us. We're going to do it. We're probably going to get killed. Um, but we're going to do it anyway, because we have this radical idea that the individual is more important than the government. And that, that is a, it's, it's almost a um, immaculate conception kind of thing. I think, I think you could, you could imagine a very few people brave enough in public life to stick their necks out like that, but this is how social change happens. Somebody goes first. Um, Other people say, Hey, that looks like a really good idea and I'm not alone anymore. So I'm going to join. And eventually it was everybody's idea in the first place. That's how social change happens.
0: Exactly. Well, there's a great quote by uh, uh, J.B.S. Haldane, who's an evolutionary geneticist, who was also very famous for having these great quips. And I always say that my favorite scientific quote by anyone, and that's saying a lot, there are a lot of very uh, quotable academics throughout history, is one that I actually uh, put as an epigraph in the last chapter of The Consuming Instinct, my 2011 book. And what basically J.B.S. Haldane argues is that Uh, radical scientific uh, revolutions or ideas go through four stages. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but I'll kind of uh, paraphrase it. First stage, when you first are exposed to an idea, oh, this is such bullshit. Stage two, well, this is largely true, but largely unimportant. Uh, And then I don't know what the third stage, and then the final stage to your point is, oh, I always thought so, right? And this has, the reason why, I love this quote so much because it's the perfect autobiography to my scientific career because I tried to come in into the business school and darwinize it how do we apply evolutionary thinking to understand entrepreneurship to understand behavioral economics to understand my area of consumer behavior and most people said what what are you what are you on what do you, biology i mean if you want to do biology go study giraffes this you're in a business school this is bullshit and then of course If you're dogged enough, if you're enough of a honey badger, if you are true to the scientific method, the evidence eventually builds up. And then the same person who sent you an email in in 1997 and said you were a bullshitter, writes you 20 years later and says, we would be delighted to have you as our plenary speaker. And regrettably for him, I'm an email hoarder, so I kept the email from 97 when you said I was a complete bullshitter. And depending on what my mood is that day, I might actually remind you that you gave me that email 20 years ago. So exactly to your point, if you're dogged enough, stick to your principles and hopefully you will win. Before we wrap up, I have one other technical question that I'll ask you about any current projects you're working on. Is there? So often when I look at the literature on... Uh, you know how political orientation affects something. How, how does happy? How is happiness affected by whether you're conservative or liberal? It's always broken up into these camps: conservative, liberal. Is there a rich body of literature that looks, for example, at the psychological profile of a libertarian? Is, is there a lot of that work? And if not, why not?
1: Um, I think the the thing that comes to mind is some of the the work, great work that Jonathan Haidt has done. On this subject, and and I'm I am not an expert on this. I'm I'm aware that the, the libertarian mindset um, that don't tread on me, let me pa- uh, work my own path, let me fail and succeed on my own merits. I realize that that's not necessarily a normal thing. Neither is neither is processing all of your all of your world around you through through logic and and the laws of economics. Um, So I think, I think we libertarians have to get better at translating our ideas into emotionally compelling stories. And that's, that's, that's where my career has, has taken me and my wife and I started free the people, uh, six years ago now. And we really just wanted to tell stories and, and, and turn people on, you know, there's two, there's basically two types of stories, both of which are some version of the hero's journey, right? It's either um, a horrible uh, oppressive government that has held you back and and you fight against that and and you succeed or fail, but that that is a version of the hero's journey, but there's also this this beautiful version where you you create something beautiful and you do it in cooperation with other people and you 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 help other people and you lift them up and and that's where progress in society comes from. Uh, we libertarians gotta get a little little bit better at that second version of the story because we're very good at raging against the machine right, right. Um, and it and it's righteous to do so, but um, there there's some really amazing things that people do when they're left free uh, to cooperate and I, I think we need to to focus on that more to show people like if if we're the 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 lost leaders out way out front wanting to shift um, uh, more, power to civil society and away from from government bureaucrats we got
0: to show people how it works in practice not just on a, on a chalkboard uh, well of course you're i i wholeheartedly agree with your sort of uh, the importance of narrative and as a matter of fact there are evolutionary arguments that support that you know we are a storytelling animal right i mean that's why literature appeals to us and so uh, and i've i've noticed it in my own writing right so that whenever i'm you know in the parasitic mind i link it to my own personal journey. So if i want to talk about identity politics and how that's an idea pathogen, well what better way than to show you what happens to the perfect society, perfect in quotes, that is built on identity politics? It's called Lebanon, right? And so now i can take you back to Lebanon and link you to my childhood. That becomes a very powerful narrative. So i think you're you're spot on that contrary to the mathematization of economics, People respond a lot more to, to narratives than to triple integrals. Okay, last question. Uh, although of course I could keep you here for four hours. Uh, what are some current projects that you might want to tell us about that people need to know about? Uh
1: three things quickly. One is we've uh we we produce a lot of uh documentaries and and a lot of uh stories. I still do some economic explainers because I can't help myself. Um, uh, my team is basically a video production cream, uh, a bunch of artists and technologists that know how to both tell a story and hopefully get people to to uh, see it um we've We've gotten in the last year and a half into comedy um because we've seen the revolution happening where where comedians uh, starting with Dave Chappelle and Joe rogan, uh Russell Brandt, so the list goes on and on and on. people that probably came from the left, but then then this, this speech policing, anti-First Amendment uh, authoritarianism coming from the left has pushed them to, to sort of reconsider. It's because um, comedy is allowed to say things that that apparently the rest of us aren't allowed to say anymore. And there's a lot of power in that. So we're, we're doing a lot of comedy. Um in a lot of ways, I consider it a gateway drug for young people that um, are not going to sit through a three-hour podcast about um, Austrian economics, but... But if you sort of plant some of those nuggets in in shorter, funner bits, um, that's a good thing. So one's called "Comedy Is Murder," because speech is violence, and the other is called "Adults Are Talking." Uh, Lou Perez, Andrew Heaton, great comedians that we're collaborating with. Another project, very different, is something that I'm working on with in cooperation with Senator Rand Paul. It's called "The Cover Up," and it's a series of investigative conversations with really smart people like, uh, like Scott Atlas, uh, who we were talking about earlier, like Jay Bhattacharya, like Rand Paul, um, um, probably some of the folks that did the Twitter files, but I don't think we have an answer as to what exactly Fauci at all were covering up. I think we need to know because we need to make sure that it never, ever, ever happens again. And, and I've, I've structured it in a way that, I don't really have an ending to this story yet because I don't know what exactly what the ending is. Um, that's going to be released. Uh, the first episode is going to be released just in a couple days. And finally, I just bought a copy of your book on happiness because my wife and I are trying to write a series of stories uh, about our life called love, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh, And it's, and it's a way to, to try to get people to, um appreciate some of these principles principles we've been talking about but just in the context of our own lives the ups the downs the the tragedies the the successes and um that has to get done this year otherwise um I'm going to do something um to publicly humiliate myself for failing to do that because I think that's <laughs> this is our job right our job is to tell stories and we have to do it um, it has to be personal. I know you you go back to your your childhood to tell um, fairly devastating stories. Yeah. Um, well, everybody deals with that stuff, right? Yeah, everybody in their own lives have to deal with bad things and good things and and we got to make it um, so that we can humanize um, freedom so that that people can can sort of be passionate about taking the risks that that require
0: that are required of you to get to happiness right, right beautiful well I, it does come across in this book uh your love and affection for your wife does come through and it actually had uh had struck me because one of the things that people often say about my public engagement is that you know how effusive i am in the public display of of love that i have for my wife actually my last talk that i gave a few weeks ago actually in montreal the person who introduced me spent quite a bit of time talking about that so it's lovely to see a fellow uh man uh honoring their wives the way that you do uh such a pleasure having you i look forward i think we talked about the possibility of me coming on your show i'd be delighted to do so at some point soon and of course you could come back anytime that you like thank you so much for coming on the show matt thank you sir cheers